Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour, episode number 41, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Hey. Now, Joe's back. Back from the grave. Now, uh, we've all been hanging out yesterday. Very low over there. I can't see you. I oh, know. I put my seat down. Holding <laughs> eye contact. Yeah, I don't want to look at you. <laughs> now, uh, we are sounding a little bit hoarse, maybe, today, because it was, of course, a big event yesterday. At the time of recording this, we were over in, uh, in Manchester. Oh, yeah. Play Expo. And uh, we met so many fans. It was really good. All these people were coming up to us. Oh, you're the Retro Hour boys. It's great. Which is amazing, considering we do an audio podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange how they recognised it. I felt really rude because of Dan was like, oh, Joe, this is some fans. And I was just like, I'm playing House of the Dead. No, <laughs> so not even bothered. <laughs> yeah. But um, not only did we meet, you know, loads of amazing listeners, but also we hung out with guys like, you know, John Hare was there and Mev Dinker we had on the show a couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, we, we spoke to him on Skype and now we met him in person and he's <laughs> even nicer in person. And um, Jeff Minter as well, we're hanging out with him for a bit. Yeah, shown as the um, Spectrum Next. Oh, Jim he, Bagley was doing Joel that. Oh, Jim Bagley, he just had it in his bag and then just kind of <laughs> produced it and suddenly nerds emerged <laughs> and gathered around. But it was so good as well. I mean, Joe, we've we've been to a few retro shows, obviously, with you over the last year. What, what did you think of this compared to the others then? Um, really impressed, really impressive. Like, we went to Blackpool earlier this year, mm-hmm. um, and then we went to one last year, and they've all increasingly got better. This is like my third or fourth one in yeah. the last year, and uh, definitely the biggest one, best one. Lot on offer, a um, lot of stuff I hadn't seen before. So, yeah, really enjoyed it. Really, really recommend it for next year. Yeah, loads of good stalls as well. I mean, I did actually only come away with um, an N64 controller and a Rumble Pack and a PS2 game, which I'm quite impressed with myself. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you were mentioning all the alternative stuff there. They had so many pinball machines. Yeah. And, yeah. like, you know, really cool stuff that you just don't see out these days. Yeah, well, real, real good selection of just everything, to be we, honest. We couldn't drag you away from the arcades, could we? No, no, I, I kind of whipped around all the stalls, spent half my money and then thought, right, I'll, I'll move away because there was a joke on who's going to break first and who's going to spend the most. <laughs> Moved away, went on some arcades for a couple of hours and then ended up going back and spending the rest of my money. <laughs> well, you uh, met someone rather. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Being the uh, 20th anniversary of uh, Tomb Raider, they had the original model of Lara Croft the one that we all looked in the magazines and went, ooh, as young boys. The man was in love. The whole yeah, car I was journey, in love, totally. The whole car journey the way back, every 10 seconds. Do you remember that time we met Lara Clark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we do, Ravi. <laughs> it was earlier today, mate. And, and I was, Lara. Yeah, I was so, like, in a daze that I forgot to ask her to come on the podcast. That would have been a good guess. <laughs> a bit weak at the knees, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we did put a load of pictures of them um, that we took then. There will actually be a video on my YouTube channel, uh, probably out by the time the show comes out. Um, we'll pop a link in the show notes at the right hour.com so if you did come along and meet us at play lovely to meet you and uh, same time next year oh totally and just <laughs> we posted a load of photos on the facebook as well so speaking of amazing people um some nice donations this week as well in the oh, last yeah. seven days now hopefully i'm not going to mince his name too much here because he did give us a really nice donation uh, borgar ebstus yeah and paul jones uh andrew s baxter uh, david trundle yeah and he's from black label empire all made very generous donations to the show. We really appreciate that, guys. Obviously, anything you donate to the podcast keeps the show going, pays for all our hosting and everything like that. And if you ever want to leave a little donation in our tip jar, you'll find that at theretrohour.com. Now, this week, 
A bit of a first. We've actually got a repeat guest. So. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that we're running out of guests. No. It's that they're doing something new. Now, this is uh, Anthony and Nicola Caulfield, who were behind the uh, Bedrooms to Billions movies. Obviously, we had the first one that was huge. Yep. Amiga um, years followed that. That was the last one, yeah. This time, um, they're going to be focusing on uh, the PlayStation. PlayStation Revolution. Yeah, which Looking is currently... To seeing it. It's a Kickstarter at the moment, and um, they're going to be coming on. We're going to have... Because the PlayStation's a huge system, and to be fair, I think, you know, 41 episodes in... We haven't really covered it as much as we should. It destroyed everything. Well, you know what gets me about <laughs> the PlayStation? Obviously, such a huge impact over in the UK. You don't actually see many British YouTubers, podcasters actually speaking about it that much. Like, you always see like how it did in America and how it did sales and the impact it said, but, but it did. But I think it would just be a really interesting watch just to see how it got on in the UK, just to mm. see a different area. Well, I remember when they launched it, the campaign, they had, like, Wipeout, that was a very European, yeah. UK-based yeah. thing. They didn't release that at the US on the oh, launch. Oh, did they not? No. And they had, in the nightclubs, when I used to go clubbing, they'd have Playstations with Ridge Racer oh, wow. on them in, in like, <laughs> clubs in town. It was the oh, first wow. time I'd ever seen a machine there, you know. So a full-on PlayStation chat on the way in around 25, 30 minutes from now with Anthony Caulfield. Unfortunately, Nicola can't join us this week, uh, but we will find out all about their new movie and uh, their research they've done so far in just a bit on the Retro Hour. Now, let's get into this week's news stories. Now, first of all, um, you know, it's always quite interesting to find out people that had kind of lives before they were famous, as it were. Now, um, this is a guy that made Shazam, and apparently he invented something quite divisive, the Internet Toolbar. Yeah, so he was saying uh, it was 1998, the early days of the internet, and I was trying to figure out how to organise my bookmarks and passwords and usernames and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So he talked to a friend who's a software developer, and they kind of came up with this toolbar idea. Now, this guy's called Rich Riley. Was he working for Yahoo at the time then? I think he must have been. Okay. Yeah. And he reckons he invented the internet toolbar. You see, it says that, and I want to see solid evidence because <laughs> I feel like it's just one of those things where you see somebody like in the bar and something and it's just like, oh, you ever see that film? Yeah, that film that came out last year. I came up with that idea 20 years ago. I'd, I'd, this this article is not giving me any solid information that he actually invented the toolbar. <laughs> like, well, it's, it says he invented it in 1998. That seems pretty late, though, for me. That's what I thought. That was my initial thought. I was like, oh, 1998, that's really late. Um but, you know, it's there on the article. And we, we all believe everything on the it's internet. It's been all over the news this month. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's been like, you know, on BBC and everything, Guardian. It's pretty mad. But then, what do you think of toolbars? I don't uh, like them. No, no, they're all right. <laughs> but, you know, this idea of inventing stuff, like my cousin made a browser back in the days that had tabs on it. Right. And so, you know, my cousin invented tab browsing, but <laughs> that's probably not the case. But, you know, it's, like, hard to pin down who invented what at each time, yeah, especially definitely. with the net, when it's so fast. I, I find toolbars as well just kind of like what your mum uses on the internet when she doesn't really know what she's doing and she's got about eight installed anyway. Yeah, yeah by accident, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and they're all flashing at you and it's just like, what's this? This is my Google one. It's just like, all right, okay. It's my Ask Jeeves one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the browsing screen's down to like 50%. Yeah. The rest of it's just toolbars. <laughs> there is a great screenshot of that, isn't there, where it is literally like 75% of the browser is yeah. just like toolbars. So, uh, well, there you go. Um, Rich Riley, if you are to thank for toolbars, then, uh, yeah, props, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is quite an interesting article in crack.com. This is seven ways that retro games sucked that kids today wouldn't realise. Okay. Sucked is a strong word for me because if retro games is, like, my passion, 
I adore retro games. I think and breathe retro games every day. But I do understand this list. <laughs> it's more more the quirks that they had, I yeah, suppose, isn't definitely. it? Definitely. So the first one is um bad translation was common and could royally screw you over. Now this goes back to a lot of those games being made in Japan. Yeah. And it was before the days of, you know, you could just log on to like Google Translate and get, you know, yeah. pretty yeah, pretty stuff like, you know, welcome to die and all your base yeah, are belong yeah, yeah. to us. <laughs> <laughs> They're the famous one. A winner is you is yeah. another one here as well. Which, you know, looking back, though, it is kind of quaint, isn't it? it, it it's part of the charm and fun of the games, though, I think. Yeah, well. definitely. Yeah. I mean, the one that comes to my mind is Castlevania, an instruction manual. It's like the pork chop to heal yourself with, but it's a chicken leg. And it's just like, OK, like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I guess as well, because like we focus a bit on European gaming and Joe's more of a... A, a Sega mm. Japan guy yeah. he's probably got more of the translator titles <laughs> yeah no yeah. there's a few that come to mind straight away like uh, the original Zelda had a lot of issues with the instruction manual yeah. and funny enough the next the next thing that sucked on the list is many games were unplayable without instruction manuals mm-hmm. so what comes to my mind is when you've got a badly translated game what you need an instruction manual for to understand how to play the game and then that instruction manual is badly translated as well but even the amount of guys that didn't bother reading the instruction manuals so I had a guy the other day saying to me oh I can't get past this on Lemmings 2 and he'd been playing it for like 20 years and I was like oh that's a little fun it controls the wind yeah. <laughs> and he was like you've opened up the whole game for me <laughs> you've opened a new dynamic yeah. <laughs> but like, I, I read think, the manual I think a lot of that is though as well that you know I know it wasn't just me that did this a lot of, a lot of us had dodgy copies of games so yeah. you didn't yeah. get a manual with it yeah so. exactly well my, yeah, my typical thing yeah. like I say like Ravi says I'm the SNES and Sega generation Mega Drive generation my problem was with my mum throwing away the boxes for all the games and often the manuals are in there so you know people are probably screaming right now oh my god your mum's throwing away the stuff but you know like I said before mums don't know better when it comes to technology <laughs> just get this crap out of here yeah and number five on the list is getting hints was a massive hassle now it was you had to wait for magazines yeah yeah. I mean, it was a bit easier in the mid to late 90s, early 2000s, because you obviously had like Games Master and you'd get every couple of issues or so, you would get like the manuals, which would come with the cheat books. But half the time, those cheat books didn't work. Like, yeah. I remember all the cheats for GoldenEye never ever worked. Like, you had to just go through the game and unlock them. But they were like, oh, if you go to the menu and twist the N64 stick and all this kind of stuff, but they never bloody worked. I think that was actually <laughs> it when PlayStation Magazine came out. That was a big change for me as yeah. well because they actually started having tons of cheat codes in there. And previously it would be like scraps of paper or little notepads that you'd have it yeah. on, but now you'd have it in a nice magazine. Oh, I, I've got a real fun memory of being about five years old at school and uh, my older brother running over to me and saying to me, we were playing through Zombies Ate My Neighbours, so mm. Zombies it's known over here, and he came over to me and the passwords are only four digits long on that game and I had to remember the first two digits of the password and he had to remember the second two digits of the password because a friend at school had told him how to get to like level three <laughs> <laughs> all day like forgetting all your lessons yeah. don't talk about maths or algebra well, oh my god <laughs> number seven and letter M <laughs> but that's true I mean I remember getting like you know the Sonic the Hedgehog like cheat at school someone in the playground knew it and everyone's like oh, we're going to try it out when we get yeah. back and it was you know that's kind of how you did it a lot of the time yeah, you, definitely. you'd watch that Games Master on TV you know when the, but even, when the even, on. even magazines wouldn't publish them that much you know there, there wasn't like massive if you want to cheat you'd have to get an actual replay or yeah. encode it all in or get yeah. one of these weird manuals or pay like two pounds to ring like a, a tip Premium line or something like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like in the film The Wizard where they ring about Ninja Gaiden <laughs> well the next one on the list funnily enough is if you wanted game cheats you had to pay for them and obviously he's picture of like a game genie here as yeah. well which uh, was the case um, moving on to the next page uh, number three every single accessory was terrible and broken 
Now, I don't think console accessories have ever really been a massive success, even like up to like the Kinect and stuff like that. It's yeah, it's not work right. Even up to like you say, the Xbox 360 to Kinect was crap. So is the Xbox One Kinect. Yeah, definitely. And then like you know, like the the fans, the cooldown fans and stuff that released for the 360, like they had so many issues with them actually overheating the Xbox. Dance Dance Revolution was really good. Mm. Yeah, uh, Guitar Hero. There were a few like. There's a few, but they weren't that cheaply made if you go back to the 80s and 90s they were always third party cheap tap really weren't they yeah the unofficial <laughs> ones yeah, Those were the, yeah. yeah. <laughs> i was watching um one of uh lgr's videos not long ago and he's talking about you know like a a system where you use mind control to play the, that game <laughs> yeah, stuff like yeah. that it's some weird gimmicks back then um number two which is actually because a lot of people don't realize this i don't think games used to be a lot more expensive back in the day and you think about it, I mean, I remember like in the early 90s, you would like, you'd often pay like 60 quid sometimes yeah, for like a yeah. Super Nintendo game. And, well, yeah. even, even I was doing some research on the PlayStation today, mm-hmm. and the PlayStation was one of the first consoles to not come with a packaged game. So I remember when I first bought mine, it had Micro Machines, yeah. which was about 40 or 50 quid for the copy yeah. of that, and just a load of demo discs that I'd sit and play and that's all I play because I couldn't afford the next game you see I mean I must have been quite spoiled because of Christmas 1995 we were asked what Sega Mega Drive games we want and I'd pick Street Fighter 2 and as amazing as it was getting a Playstation I remember being a little bit disappointed that I didn't get Street Fighter 2 <laughs> but we got a Playstation and we got four games with it as well oh, wow. so that must have cost my parents a bomb actually because we got Porsche Challenge yeah. Hardcore 4x4 Soviet Strike and Soul Blade so we were very lucky, actually, to get four games with the Yeah, yeah, I think that might have been later in their life as well, because I got it, it might when have been it was Christmas 99 so it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking at this chart here, they reckon if you took a, a, an average game price in 1992, they've done this in dollars, but it'd be $142 today, so pretty much like, you know, double the price pretty That's much. That's pretty, yeah. But, you know, they say retro gaming's really expensive. Actually, it's just reaching the prices of the original yeah. games yeah. sometimes. Well, this is the thing, you know? and it's like with the consoles as well, the actual hardware, like... You see these things, and it's like, oh, yeah, the 3DO was £300 when it first came out. But back then, in the early 90s, if you look at inflation now, like Dan just said, that's actually like 900 quid now. Yeah, it's, it's just crazy. If somebody said, oh, yeah, prices. the PS4 is 900 quid, people would go mad. I, I, th- I, think the, I think the 3DO was like 600 quid, actually. Was it? Yeah, it's so crazy. like 1,200 quid today, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's mad. And at number one on the list, early copy protection was totally insane. <laughs> Code wheels. Code wheels, Check out yeah. page so-and-so in the manual and type it in. Dongles. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. There was, um, was it Robocop 3D on the Amiga? You actually had to plug um, a little like hardware dongle yeah. into the joystick port. And I remember all the magazines went like, this is going to be, you know, defeat piracy. It's the most advanced <laughs> copy, pro- copy protection. It was crap the day it came out. So. Did yeah. they say that about Monkey Island, though, when they their little code wheel the code wheel yeah. came out and they were like oh this is going to protect all these games and all the kids at school just cut them out and copied them yeah. like <laughs> mum's photocopy your machine at work yeah, so, exactly, it yeah. <laughs> so we'll pop the full list if you want to read these in the show notes at theretrohour.com now uh, thank you to Michael Wynn who submitted this really cool bit of hardware for the Raspberry Pi and uh, this allows you to use modern printers with your retro systems yeah it's, it's kind of crazy it seems to be like a little USB device and uh, yeah, you can basically use like your old systems, like you know, Amiga or Sinclair Spectrum mm-hmm. or Amstrad, and print on like really modern high-end PCs. <laughs> which you know, people don't make these drivers for these 
PCs anymore. They stopped at about the end of the dot matrix period. <laughs> it's like, you know, HP aren't going to be interested in supporting the uh, <laughs> spectrum. You know? What just makes me laugh is the fact that somebody's just gone to all this time and effort just for something so niche and obscure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like it uses a Raspberry Pi. That's how it works. Mm. So you network it with your PC, uh, with your old machine. Yeah. And uh, apparently it's got like, you know, uh, a Citronix printer port on there as well, but I think it works both ways. So it also means that you could hook up your like you know your Core i7 PC to a nine pin dot matrix as well. Yes, so. <laughs> that's it. If you but, um, wake your neighbours up. It looks like it just clips <laughs> clips on top of the actual Raspberry Pi, yeah. and then you just can clip it at the back, and it's using the processing for the Raspberry Pi to do something. It's by the GPIO port, but it looks of it, isn't it? So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty awesome, though. You know, if you ever want to, because you know we're at play over the weekend. There was um, one of those thermal printers for the Sinclair Spectrum, yeah, and they actually worked on heat, and they were like a little till roll, but they were like ninety quid. They were selling them for at this, this Jesus, store there. And I was like, yeah. yeah, bit of novelty, but hook it up to your laser printer now if you want to, can't you? Totally. <laughs> your program. Or if you want to have a dot matrix office, it <laughs> could be the pie <laughs> trick when you have all the nerds over. Look what I can do. <laughs> Uh, this is pretty cool. Um, a very rare Nintendo arcade machine called Monkey Magic mm. has finally surfaced. Now, have you guys ever heard of this? No, I'm just reading it now. I've never heard of it at all. So I played uh, Monkey Ball. But... Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit before that. <laughs> How do you lose an arcade machine, like an arcade board or whatever? That's what gets me. So. Well, what's weird about it is it was made in 1979 okay. um, in very, very small numbers, apparently. Oh, right. few, And it was only in Japan. Um, oh, okay. So it was really, you know, obscure machine. Um, it was essentially a clone of Breakout uh, yeah. by the looks of it. But if you, I mean, there is actually a video here of someone playing it. And um, it was released on MAME a couple of years ago. And I think at the time, everyone was kind of like, well, where did this um, ROM dump come from? Yeah. Because no one's got the machine anywhere. Yeah. And then, um, you know, there's a video released on YouTube showing it working and everything, but no one knew where that came from. And there was a picture that was released 20 years ago. And it shows a Monkey Magic arcade cabinet in an arcade. And again, mm. it was somewhere in Japan. Collectors all over the world have been trying to find it. And then really randomly, um, earlier this week, one popped up on Yahoo Auctions. That's brilliant. <laughs> kind of like Japan's equivalent of eBay. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm not sure what, how much it's going for at the time of this, but I imagine it's going to be a fair bit being a yeah. one-of-a-kind Nintendo arcade machine. Yeah, definitely. And it looks really kind of, really old-school build. You know, yeah, just wooden strapped to the side, the PCB board. That There's... flat screen still, like, looking down at the screen rather than it facing you. Kind of yeah, no about. RF shielding and, no. like... A multi-tap plug thing there. <laughs> it just looks <laughs> domestic. It's like you know, but it's you know, you look at this 1979, and it was it was really before you know the big arcade revolution. It was right at the start of it, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Nintendo have been around for like over like 100 years or so, haven't they? Yeah. They've done like you know a lot of stuff. I mean, I was even seeing the other day there was um, a World War Two Nintendo board game was on eBay as well. Wow. Oh, yeah, man. You know, featuring Disney characters really randomly. So That's quite weird. I mean, it does look like a really nice build, just a nice-looking arcade cabinet, and the graphics as well for 79 just look really nice and bright and vibrant, but it's kind of what you expect from Nintendo, I guess. <laughs> well, Nintendo Leisure Systems as well, according to the back of oh. it. <laughs> <laughs> from what I've read about it as well, I've, I've not played it on main, but, you know, I intend to after I've read this, um, but a lot of people say it's even better than Breakout. It's one of those rare examples of a clone actually being better than the original game. Mm. So that old Nintendo quality was there yeah. even then, apparently. <laughs> Speaking of Nintendo as well, actually, there's quite an interesting little bit on um, Reddit's retro gaming uh, discussion here. Um, it's really talking about the price of retro gaming um, systems and games actually go trending down now and actually becoming a bit cheaper. I mean, they're actually talking specifically about the NES. Yeah. Um, but I wondered, you know, 
Some people in the comments are saying they've kind of seen this across the board. I think depending on what's kind of hot at the moment. So like last year when Majora's Mask was re-released, mm. just prior to the re-release, the game just skyrocketed on eBay, like £100 of box copies. And then you kind of genuinely, you know, yesterday when we were at play, I was seeing copies of it for like £55 and stuff, which is kind of like the general eBay kind of price now. So I think it all depends on what's hot at the moment and i mean you've obviously we've got the the mini nintendo coming out but yeah. generally i tend to find that they're just getting more and more expensive i think the world's getting poorer and the games are getting well. more expensive so that's... well i think you know when you, you mentioned then you can often get stuff cheaper you know find it yeah. and then they sell for a lot more you had an example recently with a, a cd32 game oh yeah yeah well what was this the one that i bought a few years ago yeah well, 15 quid you paid didn't you yeah i paid 15 what 20 was it? quid um black viper for okay. the amiga and that was from amiga kit matt had kind of left it out there i stupidly ripped the seal off uh, just to play <laughs> it like an idiot but um there was a listed one with unripped seal for 800 quid that just sold on ebay no way and oh, that's man. in 2 years which is just insane in inflation that's yeah. crazy i mean i don't know like i bought castlevania for the mega drive uh new generations slash bloodlines depending where you're from and i got that for 4.99 from a second-hand shop yeah about five years ago six years ago and now that's like a 150 pound game so i don't know i just i just genuinely see it always just going up to be well, honest well i kind of had this whole thing last week where i was like oh these games are getting so much i'm gonna sell it all and buy you nearly a car. did didn't you, you nearly yeah. did yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah you know but then i figure who cares in the end you know i've always wanted this collection so i'm gonna just build it and if it all declines in value i'll still be happy you see it's always yeah. been my dream to have like a big nice big games room with everything all set up and now i've actually bought my house with my missus and everything i have that and then part of me was like oh i could sell all this and get, you know get a nice big fancy wedding and a really nice honeymoon next year and then i was kind of like well no because it's always been my dream to have this big room of she's gonna get you games. to sell yeah. it now mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh no she started counting my snes games uh my Ooh. super nintendo collection like adding them up as we're moving house what have you done joe and, uh, <laughs> no 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 i didn't sell them but she said she felt sick and had to stop counting them up because she only got about 12 games in and got to over a grand <laughs> and was just yeah. like but if, to be fair she started with like secret of manor and like chrono trigger and stuff so get a so, good lock on that door <laughs> yeah <laughs> she's like i feel sick at how much these are worth and put them away <laughs> so we'd love to know your thoughts maybe you've got a really good bargain you know if you find a game that sells for like hundreds of thousands and you've got yeah. it for like two quid off a car boot sales you let us know <laughs> now the amstrad cpc is a system we've talked about a bit actually recently it's had a bit of a uh, resurgence you could say really you know recently there's been some new bits coming out on it yeah we're kind of exploring the amstrad because uh we didn't know that much about it so yeah i've only ever but, played like you know my friend grahams when i was a kid but yeah, i had an abstract pc clone but that was just like a pc clone so well someone's actually um ported the wolfenstein 3d engine to it which is pretty cool that's um, amazing yeah it's uh obviously 1992 it came out id software and um there's a team here called uh, optimus who have done it and i think it's just a little demo at the moment but it looks pretty cool um there's two different versions depending on how much ram you've got but it runs on like 64k they, they can't well. do floors and ceilings, can they? It's just the walls at the moment. But yeah, that's still amazing that they could <laughs> get that atmosphere of a of a maze crawler. You know, well, it says here there's even um, doing the, a version for the GX four thousand as well. Wasn't that the um, like the Amstrad console thing? Yeah, the white thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah so, which I think is just like a CPC um, in a console box. But I think it's it's impressive when people do that. Yeah, I, I kind of like these these old school. Remakes, demakes. Demakes, as you call That's them, it, don't yeah. you? So if you want to find out more about that, we'll show that in this week's show notes as well. Now, China has banned gaming at night. <gasps> yeah, so... What? If, I know. If you don't know, China has a massive problem 
and they actually have internet addiction centres. And if you watch a documentary that the BBC did, it's pretty horrific because, you know, some parents are, like, blaming this internet addiction on every social problem that their kid has. And uh, people are escaping from there and going to play StarCraft at night, throughout night, uh, um, you know, kind of... Internet cafes. Internet cafes, and even to the point that these cafes have little pods that you can go and sleep in and play now. So the Chinese government has decided we're going to have children in China banned from playing computer games between the hours of midnight and 8am. You know what? When you first, like, sent me the link to it and everything, I thought, oh, what a ridiculous idea. But, you know, after Ravi just kind of gave a little bit more insight on it there, it kind of seems quite sensible. I don't know if that's just me getting old, but... Yeah, well, you, it, it's like they get it. It's kind of like fat camps or something that they have in America. <laughs> it's like really harsh, and the parents are sending their kids to them. You know, and yeah, thinking this will solve everything. They, I mean, they were doing like electrodes on their heads and stuff. Oh, and, I don't believe in to that. To try and solve it, you know? I, I understand banning it at night, like especially if it's like a school night kind well, of thing. Well, that's the thing they're saying. A lot of these kids are going out and then staying in these like, yeah. the cafes, doing no. all of this stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's kind of reminiscent of um, in Japan. Apparently, it's like one of these like laws, but it's never really been disclosed. But like a Final Fantasy game and a Dragon Warrior game, Dragon Quest game, aren't allowed to be released on a weekday because of whenever they used to get released in the nineties, <laughs> productivity in Japan just yeah. dipped. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> has a sick day, yeah. Yeah, everybody had a sick day, so now it's like, you know, one of the it's an urban legend that's against the law that for them to come out yeah. in a weekday. <laughs> and uh, Starcraft is the main. Yeah, you know the main thing in Japan is massive. Well, I was looking at how you know I was thinking how they're going to police this. Then apparently they're going to require anyone under the age of eighteen uh, to register to play online using their official government ID papers. Oh wow! So and then gaming companies would use information to block access for those under eighteen <laughs> from, from midnight to eight AM each day. So uh, I guess you know if you've got internet at home, it's probably going to be easier. But it's, yeah, I don't know. It's a bit odd. What are they Pro- class proxy internet, servers? What are they class as internet <laughs> addiction though? That's what I want to know. It's like. Yeah, no, that's 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 the weird part about it because, you know, some parents could come in and be like, my son's an internet addict and he's kind of like, you know, healthy and just going online a bit. Yeah. And then they have I, some kid that's not eating because he's played so um, much. And, am yeah. I an internet addict because I use the internet all day at yeah. work? You we're know, we're probably defined job. as internet addicts. <laughs> I do, I buy 18 hours a day. Yeah, know? exactly. Like, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's a weird, really hard subject, internet addiction. Absolutely. So, uh, quite, quite. I mean, it's obviously a very different culture from over here. So, yeah, I um, think it's a feverish culture with gaming. Yeah. So it's <laughs> interesting. We'll keep an eye on that story. Now, we had to get a Tomb Raider story in for you this week, Ravi, didn't we? Oh, After well, you met Laura at the weekend. Yeah. It's the 20th did, anniversary oh, as well, Dan. So. By the way, guys, did, did you hear that uh, Ravi met Lara Croft? <laughs> <laughs> did you? Yeah. yeah. I haven't heard for five minutes. D- did you realise, guys, that, Lara, that uh, Tomb Raider came out 20 years ago this year, lads? We, we did, will just say, oh. it was actually the Lara Croft you met, wasn't it? The, yeah, the original yeah, lady yeah, was yeah. a model for it. <laughs> yeah. Not it just not just someone in cosplay. Oh, did you know, yeah. lads, that uh, it also came out on Sega Saturn? Yeah, we did, Ravi. <laughs> And you got it signed. <laughs> and got it signed, yeah. So, uh, Lara Croft was the new Tomb Raider. Yeah. actually written by Rihanna Pratchett, and she's the daughter of Terry Pratchett. You oh, know, the author, yeah? The, the Discworld author mm-hmm. and a famous, very famous author. And I she, didn't know that, actually. I, I didn't know that yeah. at all. Yeah, and she said she wanted to make him, uh, make Lara more human. So, uh, before, you know, she's just been boobs and kind of a sex figure yeah. for, for a long time. Not in the original games, but kind of after the third or the fourth or the fifth. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, kind of storyline took a backseat. Um, so, she's said, you know, the market 
sexualized her and turned it for the boys pretty much. Yeah. And now she's kind of turned it back into a strong female character. I think she was quite successful with that because of she had a lot of depth to her in the you know, in Tomb Raider and Rise of the Tomb Raider. Mm-hmm. She wasn't like you say, she wasn't just Big pair of yeah, tits that's, a, that's, that's the best thing about those games, though. Yeah. It's the storyline and the kind of the, the the connection that you get with yeah. the character. Like yeah. in the other ones, you were just playing this person. You know? Yeah, a little bit like Duke Nukem. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> you were just somebody. And you've been really into the the latest Tomb Raider, haven't you, on the PC? Yeah, yeah, because um, <clears throat> it's just so well optimized. If you're going to play any game on the PC, play that, because there's stuff like Assassin's Creed that is really badly done and really glitchy. But um, Tomb Raider, oh my God, it's like 4K, you can play it, and it's beautiful. Well, you obviously picked up the... um version on the Sega Saturn over the yeah, weekend. Yeah. Have you played it yet? I had a play on that last night, What yeah. did you think? It was all right, yeah. I, I just forgot how much, how little you can do in Tomb Raider 1, so there's none of that box-pushing stuff that you remember oh, really? you did in the later stuff. Uh, the only bit I got to was uh, you're shooting a dinosaur. Oh, that's scary. I remember yeah. that yeah. with it. Comes out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> with the I two mean, pistols. I, I find most memories of when you talk to people about Tomb Raider and they start listing off memories, is this, they're always on about number two and three. Number yeah. one didn't seem to get, especially with my kind of friends and stuff like you don't really hear many people going on about number one. It was more, more number two. But also that design of the dinosaur and the T-Rex in there, yeah. that looked like the demo that they had on the PlayStation. You know, that, you know that yeah. T-Rex one, yeah. yeah. So, and uh, Turok as well, which was a massive... <laughs> it reminded me of Turok. At the, oh, really? Yeah. Uh, how did it compare to the PlayStation? Because I've never played the Saturn uh, Tomb Raider. Uh, little tiny bits, but it's, it's a bit less jaggy on the PlayStation. Oh, really? That's it. Hmm. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, but I think it was because it was developed first. I think. Yeah, it yeah was. I think it was ported to the Saturn from the PlayStation. Yeah, so. yeah. I think it was Saturn first and PlayStation after it was. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah, it was. Oh, was it? Originally, it was a Saturn exclusive. Oh, yeah. Because yeah, okay. Tony Gudd, who's I'm the guy that desi- designed it, was like Sega fanboy. Mm. Yeah. Like proper. And he yeah. was like, I'm going to design this to Sega. So he must have been so disappointed when the Saturn yeah. <laughs> <laughs> flopped. Well, this would be a good time to lead into this week's interview, wouldn't it? Now that oh, we're yeah, on the topic of PlayStation. So uh, thank you for checking out episode number 41 of the Retro Hour podcast. We'll be out again next Friday um, on the website, theretrohour.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, all of your favourite services. Should we get really nerdy about the PlayStation now? Oh, totally. Let's do it. The movie's called From Bedrooms to Billions, The PlayStation Revolution, and the guy behind it, Anthony Caulfield, on the Retro Hour for the next 40 minutes. We'll catch you next week. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for this week's special guest from Bedrooms to Billions fame and actually the first guest who we've had on the podcast twice. Thank you for coming back on, Anthony Caulfield. Oh, wow. That's uh, that's quite an honour. The last time we talked to you, obviously, you were uh, still working on the um, Bedrooms to Billions, the Amiga years. Just to quickly touch on that then, uh, <laughs> how did that all go then? We enjoyed it. <laughs> well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm, funny enough, I'm actually still working on it. We're doing a... Um, well, well, when I say working on it, we're literally... Just uh, we're, we're finishing the mastering of the DVDs and Blu-rays. So there's a uh, there's huge um, toing and froing between the authoring house in Soho and um, and us, just uh, encoding stuff. I don't think it's quite funny actually. I don't think um, a- a- Amiga game footage has ever anyone's ever really attempted to put it on a Blu-ray before. So it's um, it, it, you're taking something which is supposed to be one particular size. And then it's being stretched upwards, obviously, to 1080p. So there's, uh, there's lots of uh, lots of interesting discussions and, and hands-on hips about codecs and compression ratios and lots of 
boring stuff like that. But the the uh, the upshot is to try and make it look as good as it possibly can. So that's what we've uh, that's what we've been doing. But yeah, it's the film is um, well, it feels like it's uh, it's it's never left me actually. But it's um, yeah, technically we actually delivered it back in uh, in May digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got about I mean, you're the first to know this actually. So I don't want angry Kickstarter backers. They think they're getting three hours, but they're getting three and a half hours. Oh, I'm sure they won't um, complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can think of well, I can think of uh, other things to complain about, but yeah, it's, we've uh, we've literally stretched the uh, the Blu-ray and DVD capacity to the absolute limit on the uh, on the bonus disc, and managed to squeeze in a, the um, a, a very long Team Seventeen piece that we've been working on, which is very long. Wow! So we didn't want to cut it down. So we've been able to give a really really long. Dedication. We're not. We're not on very PlayStation at the moment, are we? But very, very Amiga. <laughs> yeah. My brain. My brain for the last two days has been completely Amiga. So You've apologies. got an Amiga headache. An <laughs> 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 <The> Amiga hangover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you haven't had any rest recently. I mean, you did kind of touch on the uh, the PlayStation because you are making yet another movie, Bedrooms oh to Billions, yeah. The PlayStation Revolution. Yeah, it's going to be the last one because the, the thing is about these films is they roll into... Uh, by the way, I should sound excited about it. I don't mean to sound so mechanical. <laughs> but it's... Um, basically, it seems to be that when we made... When we made... Just rolling back very slightly, I promise we'll get very PlayStation in a second. Um, when... We finished from bed. Well, when we were right near the end of editing from Bedrooms to Billions, the first movie, we knew, as the backers knew, but we knew that we were massively stepping over 16 bit, and the um, predominantly, obviously, the Amiga, uh, the Amiga and ST era. But and we felt that even though, funny enough, when you when you look at the running time, it's in the original movie, there's 18 minutes dedicated to the 16 bit era. It still looks like we seems like we stepped over it. So we made all these notes. From all the interviews that we did, we had all these things that we wanted to talk about, the Amiga and the 16 bit era, that we knew we wouldn't be able to squeeze into the movie unless we were planning to sort of make Ben Hur 2, you know, sort of six hour, six hour epic. So we thought, okay, well, we're going to have to do a film dedicated to the Amiga. That's the next, the natural sort of moving on point from, from this. So we rolled straight into the Amiga years from, from Bedrooms. So we had no break. It was almost a continuous movement. Um, and that's pretty much what's happened. Uh, with um, the PlayStation Revolution, because when you're interviewing people uh, over and over again, you're hearing you get certain common phrases that come up over and over again. So no, no feeding from us. Just literally, blah, 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 and then the PlayStation changed everything. Blah, 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 and the PlayStation changed, and you just keep hearing PlayStation, PlayStation. So even though we thought we considered the PlayStation to be significant, when you're interviewing the, the developers, certainly the ones that grew up certainly the ones that went right through the industry from the 70s, 80s and all the way through. And, of course, the what we would call the, the, the second and third generation developers that came in in the 16-bit era and then slightly after, it was the same thing. The PlayStation seemed to change everything. And that doesn't mean that other other consoles weren't significant. We're not we're not suggesting that if, if we don't cover a console in our films that they're just not worth mentioning. That's not, not the case at all. But what we found is there's certain turning points in this 40, coming up to what, 40, nearly 45 years now, the games industry, um, in, this, in this history, there's certain major branching off or turning points where something significant seems to happen. And all the interviews we were doing for, uh, for obviously the first film and then the Amiga years, the PlayStation was continually coming up, just like the Amiga was continually coming up mm-hmm. when we were doing the first movie. So it just felt like if we're going to tell this story properly, 
um, we need to look at why that PlayStation was so significant and perhaps it will get us to a point where when we get to the end of the PlayStation revolution, you know, we'll be looking, we'll be sort of tying a bow around it and saying, okay, well, this is our take on the, on at least this part of the part of the games industry. I genuinely don't know because we've only just started um, shooting. We, you know, we've literally just been getting everything to um, everything together. I've just had to, we've just had to take a little bit of a hiatus just to finish the mastering of the um, of the Amiga years. And Nicola's been um, working very, very hard finishing off all the editing for the um, for the special features while I've been prepping for the PlayStation revolution. Well, uh, you say that lots of people mention the PlayStation. We've interviewed so many developers on this show and they've talked about the first time they saw that PlayStation demo unit and the, mm. you know, G-Rex, uh, yeah. the giant ty Tyrannosaurus Rex and how significant it was and such a change in the industry. Was it kind of a hard decision for uh, Sony and how did the whole kind of playstation begin it's very interesting you you interviewing them at this point because i'd be dying to know how i would answer that question in six months time because by that point we would have interviewed you know the main hardware team because you know nicola and i would like to speak to the, the people themselves and and sony have been fantastic in sort of helping us secure those interviews so we're going to be hearing directly from the people themselves that created the playstation and there were some brits involved and and some others, but what we're going to try and under, and I'm being, I'm, I'm answering this question as openly as possible because obviously anybody can open up Wikipedia and read what they think is their take on how the PlayStation came about. I want to really, Nicola, I really want to find out what happened. But this, this legend, this legendary fallout between Sony and Nintendo, how did that come about? Why did it collapse? Why did, is it true that Sony then when it went full tilt into making a 3D console purely to get back at Nintendo? Our early research has shown actually that's more real than it's actually more absolutely fact. But we'll find out when we start interviewing people, and hopefully we'll hear from some Nintendo people as well. But there was seemed to be a reluctance from Sony initially to to really make it, do the project because at that point, if you if you really think about it, there wasn't a brilliant history in non-games companies having a successful games console. It tended to sort of go. I'm thinking about Apple and the Pippin and all sorts of. Uh, um, nightmares that seem to exist. So Sony were one of those in the, one of those positions where they had no experience of games. Also, CD-based um, systems as well. There was a a lot of CD-based systems like 3DO and CDI that all kind of were very successful. The key was actually how to get the data, how to really make use of the disc. So you, you've got a storage capacity, which is fantastic. Obviously, you're going. You know, when you compare it to a cartridge or a or a floppy disk, um, a CD is just literally like utopia, isn't it? It's just such a huge, huge jump up. But the key was how quickly to get the data from the disk so that it could actually make a difference in the game. And, you know, when you look at some of the earlier, some of the other CD-based systems where the data, re the, re the actual, being able to make the data come into the game real time was a real issue. And that seemed to be one of the big things that the, that the PlayStation, they were trying to solve. Um, in those in those early days, in trying to make it so that okay, we've got we can really truly make use of um, of CD. Which is forget 3D for a moment. How to truly make use of the CD? How to actually make it so that it wasn't just a storage system for music or the game itself. It was actually able to stream stuff in and bring stuff in in real time, or a lot certainly a lot faster. I mean, compared with today's speeds, it was you know incredibly slow, but yeah. still. Then you take in the the whole 3D environment. What, t what then happened was when these demos that you mentioned earlier on in the program 
suddenly was shown, developers immediately started all those games that they'd those ideas that they'd shelved away all those years earlier as, as in, and marked up as impossible, uh, at least impossible at that point, they started to open those drawers in their brain. They go, hang on a minute, I could do that now, and I could do that. And game developers, when they're working at their best, when they see new technology, those ideas that they've tucked away, they then can bring them out. And that's why you then see that flurry of early games where suddenly Martin Edmondson, for example, able to do a game like Driver, when he was a kid, he was a fan of he was a fan of all of those seventies um, cop movies, Bullet and well, sixty nine, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, all those sort of cop movies and everything, and just think, right, that's the type of game I've always wanted to make. And now with three D, I can actually do it. If you also look at people like Phil Harrison, literally walking around uh, working for Sony, Sony had no reputation as a games, certainly as a games developer or publisher or anything. He's walking around with a suitcase going around all the development studios in Europe, trying to convince people, say, look, this really is going to be a game changer, and trying to convince developers to actually risk their livelihood, really, on a new system from an untested company. I mean, it was Sony, so it's not as if it's some sort of, you know, they have got a bit of money, so you, you could probably guarantee that they were going to do it, but still, developers to then take six months or a year of their life when they're, when they're trying to develop, when they're used to things like SNES and the Mega Drive, to take a leap of faith, it really did make a big difference. We had the Oliver Twins on our show not long ago, and they were talking about how they got one of the early PSM development kits, and apparently a lot of their contemporaries at the time and developers all had massive doubts that the PlayStation would be a success at all. I mean, is that kind of something you ran into, or did a lot of people kind of say that to you? Funny enough, we're, we're going to be interviewing the Olivers. Mm-hmm. Um, we, haven't done it, we haven't done it yet, but they, they've actually said that. I've already exchanged um, emails with them, and they, they've said that. Bearing in mind the people that we've interviewed from, for the earlier two movies... There was a large, a large portion of them had great success with the PlayStation. So obviously, I've not encountered people yet that said that they that they had issues with the with the PlayStation. However, one thing I did encounter on the first film, um, which I actually asked Phil Harrison about, funny enough, because Phil Harrison was one of the last interviews we did from for Bedrooms to Billions, um, was some developers are saying they found they they couldn't get into they couldn't get on the Sony bandwagon because they couldn't afford the de- development kits. And they, they, you know, they were sort of quoting various prices, which were way out of, you know, sort of many, many thousands. So when I, you know, there were, I, one company in particular was Denton Designs. If you remember Denton Designs, yeah. big success on in the 8-bit era and a little bit on the 16-bit. Um, but they wanted to make that jump to PlayStation and they felt they, they couldn't. And a few other developers told me the same thing because they just couldn't afford the development kit. So when I asked Phil Harrison about that, he said, well, we tried to make them as cheap as possible. It wasn't like we were trying to you know, cut people out of the market, but they were extremely expensive pieces of kit, at least the early systems, because they, they did scale them down eventually and come up with those blue ones and um, a few other ones to make, them, to make them a bit easier. There were a lot of developers that were able to sort of make that, make that leap. And I think the 3D was the door for them, was the, was, the, uh, was the gateway to actually start producing whole different types of games. Well, I think, you know, originally when the PlayStation was kind of spoken about and you saw it in the magazines and stuff like that, everyone assumed, because the 3DO would come out and that was like $700. Everyone thought the yeah. PlayStation was going to be a fortune. Then there was obviously that infamous moment with Steve Rice where he came up on stage and he just said those words, 299. I asked Phil about that and effectively it was almost at a loss. They were, you know, it was because they knew that if they didn't get, if they didn't make it so that it was, you know, you'd have to be nuts to not buy it. You know, it's such an amazing piece of kit, so cheap. 
and they knew that people would just would take a punt on it because it was exactly that. If it was eight hundred pounds, which you could argue, co- comparing it to other consoles that were sort of in that similar ilk, or certainly before, certainly we take things like the Neo Geo and things. You know, you've got that sort of bracket of you could say, oh, maybe it's it is eight hundred quid, eight hundred pounds, seven or eight hundred pounds would be justifiable for a three D CD based console of that power. So yeah, it's quite astonishing. I want with Nicola and I want to understand exactly how they were able to make it quite so cheap. But maybe it's just simply because Sony obviously had that incredible manufacturing track record and obviously if anybody was in a position to get component prices and other elements as cheap as possible, then it would be Sony. So I, we obviously want to understand that because that price point was critical mm-hmm. in getting in getting those machines getting those consoles out across across the world. Um and decent marketing, and also the other thing which is absolutely critical whenever you're launching anything is a good batch of early titles to really catch the eye. When you take games like Ridge Racer, and you know we've heard from Namco already um, in the fact that they were able to take their existing arcade machine, uh, their arcade titles at the time, Ridge Racer being one of them, and effectively, with a little bit of scaling down, not, not a great deal, but technically taking the same game and getting it to run so people were able to see what they were familiar with arcade, true arcade games running in the home. That again made a made a big difference. When I first saw a PlayStation, it was actually in a nightclub, and they had a row of Ridge Racer machines, and they were all free to play. And this was one of the first time that I'd seen I consider normal people, non geeks, <laughs> sitting down <laughs> and playing on this and enjoying it. The and cool kids. Yeah, the cool kids are actually going and playing on these machines, and that was a drastic change from before. Yeah, we've we've heard that with um, with what Wipeout was another one that was obviously very popular, um, popular in clubs, and um, you know that was a that was a really really big deal, and and that's the thing, it made it. You know, people ban the word around making it cool and other things, but it did make gaming mainstream and cool. It, it, gaming was obviously very popular before the PlayStation, and it was continuing to grow, but the PlayStation came along at that incredible time with the right console, 3D, with us, and CD. You know, it had a, D, a company behind it that could cash flow it in such a way to really get it out across the world with the advertising and all sorts of other things. Wipeout, Wipeout for me as well was such a big title when it came out, and it massive in Europe, you know. And this was also because the graphics kind of hark back to those demo scene days where you had tunnels and yeah. you know all these old kind of effects, and it all just seemed to come together with a banging soundtrack. <laughs> it was just amazing. I think that's a, that's a really really good point. Wipeout seems to be a game that people mention a lot because it's one of them jaw droppers, isn't it? You know when you you know, as we talked about with the with the Amiga years, Defender of the Crown was one of those early titles or Marble Madness where people went, oh my God, because they were used to seeing computer games looking like old-fashioned computer games. And suddenly you had two, that an arcade game and a very, very good-looking home game suddenly appearing on this new computer, the Amiga, and people going, wow, and getting a full feel. Like, roll, roll ahead 10 years and wipe out Ridge Racer and some of those early, other early games. Were, um, were a major factor for me actually it was actually Resident Evil mm-hmm. um, Resident Evil was one of the I had a PC funny enough but my cousin had a Playstation and he just happened to get Resident Evil for it and that was the first game I really properly played on the Playstation I think the other thing I'm, I'm very interested in understanding from, from developers um, certainly at the very beginning of the Playstation is also how they were able to get the 3D working because obviously you're, you're dealing with 
you're going from a two-dimensional programming mindset to a three-dimensional mindset and the mathematics that are involved to make that happen. I mean, funny enough, developers are going through that now with all the augmented reality and virtual reality and the other things. They're having to suddenly think again. Yeah, so well, a lot of those early PlayStation titles were kind of you know newer versions of games that we saw on other you know platforms like the Amiga, for example. Like we had uh, you know 3D Lemmings, I remember came out yeah, on there as yeah. well. Jungle Strike and Desert Strike, they had a few of those. Not all of them kind of worked, but it, it did seem like everything had to be 3D all of a sudden, and it didn't always translate that well, did it? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. Um, you get that because obviously you get a couple of very successful 3D titles, and everybody latches on. We've got to do 3D. The, and then you get an obsession with, with this new style that everybody then wants to emulate and go for. And then it gets to a point where it gets boring. Then you suddenly see a renaissance in different styles again and 2D has another little comeback. And you do, you do, tend, to, you do tend to get that. That's, quite a, that's not, a, not a new thing at, at all. I think one of the other things as well is that um, we, we did cover this on the first film, but the PlayStation also saw a real increase in actual less risk-averse uh, ideals, and what I mean by that is a developer could then start because of the way that um, the games were manufactured on CD. They were so much cheaper to actually make, um, to actually manufacture. And I think, as if anyone that's seen the first from Bedrooms to Billions film, we cover the fact of how ca- cartridge manufacturing and publishing was a, was a nightmare because obviously you had to, you had your game, which let's say for the sake of argument was in development for a year, and then the publisher had to guess basically because the develop because it took three to four months to make the cartridges they had to be ordered and paid for up front so this is obviously for the snes and the um mega drive i'm talking about but so you had to um you had to sort of gamble you know three four months ahead and if you got it wrong and you had say a jurassic park on your hands that's sort of flying off the shelves and you've under you've under ordered your stock a game that you might have spent X million on developing, suddenly you're just, you've blown it because the game takes off, you haven't got enough stock. But on the flip side, if you think this is going to be a surefire hit and order millions of cartridges and the game tanks, you've got millions of, you know, hundreds of thousands of cartridges mm-hmm. sitting in a warehouse earning you nothing. So with the PlayStation, because the, the manufacturing, you know, you could order a low amount just because you might not be 100% sure if this game's going to be a, uh, going to be a winner, you order a lower amount, and then if you order more, it takes three, five days to order a new set of stock, but not four months. That's great. So you could spend more on an experimental title or something a little bit more risky or whatever, or certainly you could concentrate your funding on the development to make a really, really good game without being so paranoid about the stock at the end of it, how many you were going to produce. Um, it's just it just created a little bit more freedom for developers. I guess that's why games like Prapper the Rapper came out that were you know total <laughs> different concepts that we'd had than we'd had before. I still remember the first time I saw. I mean, it's almost taken the Mickey out of three D, isn't it? This two D paper. That, oh, it's a, but isn't it an original game? Isn't it just an amazing, fun little game? I, I still remember when I first saw that. And I think also around the time that the PlayStation came out, the advertising was a big part of it as well because, um, you know, what we mentioned kind of earlier, it made gaming grown up. Um, you know, the Super Nintendo yeah. and the Mega Drive were like seen as a bit kiddie after the PlayStation came out. And their advertising yeah. was quite edgy. I mean, from what you've heard, did the, I mean, Sega's was kind of pretty similar a couple of years before, trying to appeal to that kind of teenage demographic maybe. Um, do you think they ever took any pages out of Sega's book for that to aim for like the cooler audience? 
Mm, I don't know, actually. I mean, I've, I had the pr- privilege of interviewing Tom Kalinsky once. Mm-hmm. We did a... Um, um, we actually, you find it on YouTube, actually. We did a Sonic... That we were asked to make a 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary. I think it's 20th or 25th anniversary. Should know, of course. Um, documentary on Sonic the Hedgehog. So we did we covered all that. We did a... Um, it was a 70-minute film or 50-minute film that was broadcast all over the place. And we interviewed Tom Kalinsky and we asked him specifically about that advertising. And he just felt that... Though we might get sued, we need to... Nintendo was streets ahead of them, so we've got to find any way that we can to claw that back. So they just took, they pulled the gloves off. Um, so I think with Sony, certainly that trend, is, uh, that trend is starting to move that way. I mean, Commodore did it a couple of times. They did it with the CD32, famously, mm-hmm. um, with, the, um, with their poster outside of Sega's offices. Um, to be this good will take Sega ages, you know, because they bought... They, so it was starting to move towards that thing, but I think that the advertising with the PlayStation, I think it was about a hundred notches higher. They're, they're not just edgy; they're you know they're way out, they're way 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 out there. And I think that's the that's what Sony were trying to they were trying to do. They were trying to make this console is truly different, edgy, dark, not so dark, but you know just different and not kiddified. And I don't think you can make it. Any less, you can't move it further away from being kidding. Well, I always remember that, the, the one with the, uh, the girl with the pigtails in, you know, with the Scottish accent. Yeah. I was like, you saw that on TV, like, what's this about? It's like Channel, <laughs> Channel 4 late at night, you know, it when they used it. to play really weird stuff. Yeah, That's right. That's right. And that was all, that was all around the PS2 era. It just cranked from about 2000. I used to watch, um, I'd be watching, I seem to remember the Champions League. They said PlayStation yeah. seemed to stick a load of PS2 ads on. Um, around the Champions League on ITV in the early, uh, the early noughties, as, as everyone calls it now. And uh, you'd see these, you know, the man you would be losing or winning or whatever, and it goes to half-time, and then you suddenly just get this bizarre advert, you know, with, um, with you know, directed by Lynch or somebody else. So we want to explore that, because, again, that all helped move the games industry forward. Suddenly you were seeing... Now, nowadays, you do get adverts for game commercials on mainstream television that that you think, whoa, you know, they're a little bit. Well, actually, I have to say, without again trying to sound like a, a granddad here, but I have to say, I think gaming uh, commercials seems to have lost their edge a little bit in the last couple of years, or last year or so. I haven't seen anything that's really sort of made me sit up, and they all seem to be sort of very, very a bit like movie trailers. The way they sort of all movie trailers seem to sort of over in fifteen seconds, and it's just a sort of blur of blur of imagery. Yeah, um, Old Spice trailers are now like games commercials used to be. <laughs> That's very true, isn't it? <laughs> Brilliant, I love that. <laughs> well, uh, w- yeah. one thing that I found was uh, when I bought a PlayStation first, it didn't actually come with a game. You know, you had to buy one separately, but it came with all these demo discs, so I'd kind of survive mm-hmm. on these demo discs. And uh, Net Euros was like... Uh, a little development unit where people could do it yep. at home. And I'd often get the games in the magazines. I really love that kind of little independent development scene they had going. We're going to cover that. We're going to cover it because it's... Uh, and I'm also interested to know... Sorry, I do apologise. It is Nicker and I. She's not here, not here at the moment, but I'm, I'm speaking for myself. But we are, we are very interested to know um, how many developers have gone on into, into mainstream game development now because of that development system. Um, I know of a, I know of a few, but I think there's no way of getting away from it. It was a, certainly an extremely interesting and original thing to do because the whole concept of, you know, with, and I'm not in any way trying to disrespect Nintendo or, or Sega, but when you weigh it up, that there was no, there, there just couldn't be any sort of system like that on those consoles. It was, 
And, and you also have to look at it and think, why did Sony do that? Obviously, it was a positive thing, but it, it, I don't hear people really talking about that, that step that they took, you know, to create a development system that would allow people to sort of get into console development. A very, uh, I mean, I appreciate it wasn't a full-blown development system, but it was pretty, pretty damn good. Um, and it, it, it opened the door for people that, to give them that sort of interest. I mean, nowadays, so many people seem to be desperate to get into game design. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of things available for them and everything else. But a console developer suddenly offering something like that, it was very, very original and interesting step. So we definitely want to cover that. Well, Ravi mentioned then a, quite an interesting point that you know about the lack of packing games and stuff as well. Obviously, I mean, you know, Sega had Sonic and Nintendo had Mario. Um, was there ever any kind of thought of that PlayStation might need a mascot in its early days? From what we've heard is that they, they felt that Lara Croft could be that, um, could be that mascot. You know, Crash. Crash was sort of a sort of a mascot. I mean, some some PlayStation fans regard Crash as a um, uh, as a mascot, but I think a sort of an unofficial mascot would probably certainly in the early days would be Lara Croft because I mean, don't forget that game wasn't actually the original Tomb Raider wasn't created for the PlayStation. It was a Saturn, wasn't it? Yeah, it was created. It was created for the Saturn, but Sony just knew it. They bang, they were on it immediately. And there's a funny story about. Um, you might know that. You probably know Ian Livingstone's story about how he discovered Tomb Raider. Uh, for those of you who have seen From Bedrooms to Billions, Jeff Brown, who was the founder of US Gold, you know, very successful publisher and, and Centersoft with distributor during the 1980s, he went out to America and bought a lot of Epic's titles and other amazing American games and made them available across Europe through his US Gold brand. Um, US Gold went on to release games like uh, in, in Europe, such as Flashback and Another World and some really, really amazing titles. But by the mid-90s, they got into trouble, uh, financial trouble, uh, very much because of the console, uh, the, the cartridge system, actually, uh, we were talking about earlier, pretty much spelled their demise. But one of the last things that US Gold did was they bought Core. Um, and Core were designing several games at the time. And when US Gold finally were, went out, were about to go under, they sold out to IDOS. Ian Livingstone and some of the other guys at IDOS took, took turns to drive around to look at the various properties and, and other things that they owned. And Ian Livingstone drew the straw to go to Derby to see Core. And he said he was in a dreadful mood. You know, it's raining, like Tuesday afternoon, just want to get home. So, oh. He was even trying to put off going in to see Core. This sounds obviously incredibly disrespectful, but he does tell it in a funny way. And it's an outtake, so one day it will see the light of day because we've, we've filmed it. And he went in there and he, saw, he said he went in and he saw one room where there was this very nondescript shoot em up um, in one room and he went in another room met a guy called Toby he said oh this is a game I'm working on for the Saturn called um, I think he, at that time it was, it was called Tomb Raider but he just he saw it and his jaw dropped and he, he was on the phone and ringing back to, um, to the IDOS guys and saying I've just seen this absolutely amazing game but within the space of about a year or so Sony basically made them an offer to say we want to take that exclusively to PlayStation to answer your question about mascots I think Lara Croft had a massive impact well, I think as well, because of, you know, we kind of mentioned, you know, it was very heavily that teenage boy demographic. Um, Lara Croft was probably the perfect <laughs> kind of mascot for it, really, I suppose, wasn't she? Yeah, there you go. You see, that's the, <laughs> I just, you know, I can still remember the life-size models outside of, um, outside of various shops and, you know, W. Smith and other places sort of see, seeing her. Um, Tomb Raider 2, of course, was, I think, the one that really stamped it. And, and that's another thing, by the way, Tomb Raider, don't, as we mentioned, the PC was out on PC as well. So it was effectively designed on that and then able to be ported across to the, uh, to, the, to the PlayStation. 
so yeah, it, it made the development so much simpler um, because you had a console out there that was capable of at least um, you know going quite a far way along with the PC. Well, obviously, you know, we, we did kind of mention the Saturn as well. And um, after the success of the Mega Drive, when, you know, Sega's next console was talked about, everyone thought, oh, you know, it's going to be another huge system as well. But Sony kind of came along and just shook everything up. You know, Sega were never the same after that. Obviously, it'd only be one more console before they were finished in the hardware market. And the Ultra 64 was delayed by about like three years. So Sony, yeah. like, they kind of came along at that moment where they, they had the market kind of to themselves, really, didn't they? I guess for a couple of years. They did. I mean, this is where you get into. Um, the, you know, legend and rumor and, and other things, but from what from what I think we all we all know is that the Saturn was um, was rushed out um, and then not properly supported. But I mean, that's the thing. Um, I'm, we're going to be interviewing some people at Sega, um, so I hopefully you know if you ask me this question again in six months, I'll have a very clear answer for you. But I genuinely, when we're making a documentary, I, st- I write loads and loads and loads of questions to myself, Dan. And that's one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I read various magazines that sort of say very assuredly that, that the Saturn was rushed um, to try and beat the PlayStation and, and everything else like that. But would it really have made much difference? I mean, what really went wrong with the Saturn? The, could it comp- truly compete with the PlayStation? I mean, the Saturn isn't a bad console. Um, it's just it's a lot of a lot of developers have complained that it was very very difficult to develop for. I also will want to understand exactly how much of a threat did Nintendo perceive Sony because obviously the legend is is that um, when the president of Sony was so annoyed by being not disgraced but sort of dishonoured by by Nintendo's actions um, that, that massive resources were then dedicated to the PlayStation to make it a, a, a world beater. An ego um, thing, then, yeah? yeah? Yeah, that's the legend. I mean, that's the thing about when you take the whole... The, that's another thing we're looking forward to doing with this film, is bringing the Japanese into the story. One of the biggest no. titles that um, came out on the PlayStation for me, and it showed, after five years of its shelf life, how upward the graphics had gone. It was Final Fantasy VII. Mm. And I think that was just a stunning piece of art. We'd never seen anything like that before. No, of course not, and it's being re- uh, it's being remastered at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. For PS4, so yeah, it's um, we are um, um, we are obviously looking to uh, to interview um, those developers. Actually, we are going to Japan to interview quite a lot of, a lot of those guys. I never like to say for, for definite beforehand, more more out of superstition, but we're we're very hopeful that we're going to be able to get what you would consider the classic um, Japanese developers, the ones that you would expect to see. Um, in such a film. That's what we're aiming for. Um, and um, Sony are helping us. So, you know, I'd, I'd be expect to be asking those sorts of questions. Certainly with regards to, is it true, what was the reason to switch um, from, obviously, from uh, Nintendo to go to, um, to, go to Sony with, the, the, uh, with Final Fantasy VII? Because, obviously, that was the big switch of console um, for, the, develop- for um, the development team. And... Um, you know, was it because it was a CD-based system or, you know, I want to understand exactly what that switch was because that was another huge coup for Sony, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. To get Final Fantasy VII. I remember seeing that at the time and it was like, uh, you know, a Final Fantasy game coming out on a non-Nintendo system. What? It's like... Yeah. Yeah, you never thought you'd see that. Well, there's uh, one thing as well that I don't think anyone on the press or official would usually ask you and this would be about the piracy with the PlayStation because there was a, actually quite a big scene for mod chipping, disc swapping, and <laughs> at school it was like we moved from floppy disks to CD. <laughs> it was like yeah, yeah. literally. You couldn't that. do it with cartridges, could you? Really? Yeah. No. <laughs> so. 
No, well, that's the thing, isn't it? It was a CD-based system, which meant you could burn CDs, and you know there were yeah. I mean, it's I mean, where the piracy was, you certainly couldn't. It certainly didn't start with the PlayStation. It won't end with the PlayStation. It's um, it was you know it was around since the you know the very very early 1980s. Hackers will always look at what you know. Sometimes it's just a challenge. It's not necessarily about playing the games. Again, going back to the, the Amiga years, interviewing all these uh, the demo thing people and the crackers, cracking crews, hackers, other things. They they were saying to me that do you know what? It got to the point where they were getting obsessed with cracking games and weren't playing any. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it, would it. it would literally be. You know, they're saying that some of the copy parties, some of the some of the hackers, were literally treating it like a job. Oh, another game to crack. It wasn't about oh, crack it and have a really great time playing it. It was literally like a, a, a nine, almost like a nine to five job to crack the games, post up the data, and then move on to the next one, just well, to sort of prove that you cracked it before somebody else. Sorry, one thing that I found was Sony must have been pretty confident that they would sell a lot of units because it was very easy to copy and do swap <laughs> tricks. Whereas the Sega Saturn. They've just cracked it this year. Yeah. So it's, it's taken that long, yeah. That's very true. I, I, I have no idea why that would be, why that was the case. I mean, you could also, cynics out there might say not enough people bought me the Saturn, so no one really cared. Um, I, I think that's extremely unfair, and I don't really mean that, but um, PlayStation was incredibly mass market. So many people got their hands on it. It was cheap. The other thing as well, if it's a thousand pound piece of kit, you might not want to go and rip it apart so much, but a couple of hundred pounds, you know, oh, I burnt one out, I'll have to go and get another one. It leads to experimentation and, and other things. I think that might be another another part of it. It was it was cheap. Um, it was cheap and, and it was widely available. Um, and it leads to experimentation. Of course, CD, CD-based system, um, once you can burn your own discs and it could be cracked, you know, it was a. It was. I mean, everybody was passing copies around PlayStation games. They were everywhere, downloading them, and the internet became more available. Um, it was always. A, it was always a big problem. But maybe they didn't envisage that being such an issue and didn't lock it. Lock it down. Um, one thing I don't know: what was the PS2 like for that? Did that get? It was much harder. Uh, yeah, much harder yeah. on the PS2. You had to you, you, modify it, put in there. different lids and stuff. Yeah. You sound like you're talking from experience. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, but, yeah, you need a little piece of paper or a pen for the PS1. <laughs> it was very simple. Well, it's that top-loader system as well makes it easy, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, well, you, you mentioned yeah. the PS2 there as well, and that's quite, you know, obviously following up the PlayStation, which was, you know, the most successful console of the 90s. Um, mm. Development of the PS2 then, what, have you kind of learned how what went into that and what kind of thought process? Or um, that, that must have been a pretty hard system to design after the PS1. I know only, a, I literally know only a small amount about how the PS2 came about. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I've got a huge stack of questions to, um, to find out. I would assume by Christmas I'll know. If you, if you look at, sorry to keep talking about older systems, but when you take something like the Atari 2600, the Atari 2600, the, so many of the Atari um, engineers were telling Atari that they needed, a follow, they needed to start developing the follow-up system to the 2600 almost immediately because they knew that it would take a couple of years and they needed it out. And the Atari management didn't listen. So what was eventually pushed out, though good, was years and years too late. Um, so I'd be interested to know at what point Sony really decided to start developing the PS2. I know what's available on the web. Mm-hmm. I know what information's out there. But I really want to understand when, who decided, when was it decided, and how different 
were they going to try and make it? And obviously, it was a huge success because you know we know we know where the, how, how well the PS2 is done to this day. But just rolling on slightly, some of the things that we've discovered is that the PS3 is where even in some internal Sony people felt that Sony lost their way a little bit. So they made some missteps, which by that point, by the time the PS3 came along, suddenly they were they already had a competitor in Microsoft. Yeah, and they had other things to think about. They in a funny sort of way, Microsoft were playing catch-up the way Sony were probably trying to enter the market when Nintendo were light years ahead. So but Sony, Microsoft had been able to sit there and work out, you know, around 2000, 2000 how they are going to try to enter the market with the Xbox. So what, what Nicola and I are interested in when it comes to the PS3 is... Were, how was Sony swayed by what Microsoft was doing, by what the Xbox was capable of? What, what, was it, what was in their, in their thinking? Because though it eventually settled down, the PS3 launch, announcement and launch, was not smooth. That was a disaster, wasn't it? Yeah. Of course. Hmm. It was, I was being nice. But yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and, there were, and they made, again, not trying to curse Microsoft here, but they made some very Microsoft-type announcements, if you know what I mean they sort of behaved in a way that was a little bit like Microsoft. You would expect Microsoft to behave, where they sort of said, we're doing this, it's very expensive, but they expected people to buy it. And then, of course, you're reducing the price within a very short space of time, which annoyed the people that, that initially went out and bought bought it for the top price. What was it, 599 It was something, yeah. something crazy, wasn't the it? The Blu-ray drive cost a fortune, didn't it? Well, that's the thing. They tried to... I can completely understand the reason... Just like they did with the, um, and we didn't really touch on this, by the way, of course, did we? The the, um, the PlayStation, obviously, with the um, the PS2, with the um, with the DVD player. Yeah, a lot of people bought that as a DVD player. Of course. Yeah, yeah I heard... completely stepped over that. Sorry, I should have been yeah. a lot more clear on I, that. I yeah. heard the whole market in Japan was VCD before there. Yeah. And then PS came out, and it was like the cheapest DVD player you could get. So people were just buying it for the DVD player as well. And you got a free console included. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Now that's Sony's experience with the with the hi-fi and the consumer electronics market. People are buying DVD players all the time. Uh, you know, I bought, I got a PS2 because I needed a DVD player. Well, I think that was Microsoft's you know, biggest screw with the original Xbox. That played DVDs, yeah. but you had to buy like a separate media remote to enable it. It was like, what were they thinking there? Maybe what somebody will do a film one day, and I'm not saying this that we're doing it, but um, of the greatest video game mistakes. Yeah. Because you look at some things and you think, what on earth were they thinking of? There is absolutely no excuse you could possibly make. Why would you make it so fiddly and difficult? For, if, you, if you make the consumer think twice about something, where well, they have to, oh, but you then need this piece of equipment to do that. Whereas this one here, it just works. Yeah, it's, HD you know, DVD is an example oh. of that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Having that big, you chunky add-on. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And that was... Well, that was to try and because they viewed that um, they needed to create a right because Sony obviously own the blue own Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. You know, they I mean even to, you know for example to make the Amiga years Blu-rays, I need a license from Sony. By the time the Xbox One came out and Microsoft had to you know pay Sony royalties for all the games on the system, that must have hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes in life, you just you know you have to do those things and they sting. And you've tried it, and they tried it with it. You know, the HD system was a complete disaster. Um, and of course, how much? Money? But that's the thing. One thing I will say: you could, in a funny sort of way, you know, Sony 
Sony had as uh, could have had a, it could have been a disaster with the PlayStation. I wonder if the success of the PS1 and then the you know 115 million um, PS2s they sold, if if Sony kind of got a bit cocky, you know, when the PS3 was announced, they thought, oh, everyone buys PlayStations now, and that kind of oh, early yeah. like you know passion and that they kind of lost that around then. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think, but you know what? As um, somebody at Sony told me recently, um, under inter- when we were interviewing, he said that you know any company can go through goes through that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's how you learn from that. <laughs> it's what you if you don't get it quite right. There's no point just sitting there going down with the ship. You know you've got to look at it and say, okay, this hasn't gone right. You're not going to get it right every time. You know, all right, maybe it was overpriced. Maybe there were things that they expected that. But I think the price was a big issue. I, I seem to remember when the PS3 came out, everybody was obsessed with the price. Yeah. It was price, 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 price above everything else. It, and it was and it was sort of very against what PlayStation had been in the past. Because PlayStation was always accessible and, and cheap. They were putting yeah. everything in there, with like memory card readers and all sorts of personal ones. Yeah. PS2 on a chip, didn't it, as well? Do you, I'm wondering if they were actually phased by Microsoft. Yeah. I, I, think, that, I think that probably had a big, deal to do, a, big, a big thing to do with it. I think they... Um, obviously, Blu-ray was one thing, because obviously they needed to get that next... Um, it probably irked them slightly. Again, this is only mere guessing. But it, it probably irked them slightly that Microsoft were coming out with a rival format. So Sony then probably felt obliged they'd have to they'd have to pack in um, uh, the drive, the Blu-ray drive. So they probably thought we've got to um, we've got to pop this in. Um, you know, maybe that was the thing that drove the cost up unne- unnecessarily. I don't know. Um, hopefully, I'll find out. Well, but gonna... they did obviously. What was it? Six months later, they smashed the price. Yeah, then then obviously the Slim came out, and it, I mean by the end of that generation, the PS3 did outsell the 360, but, but it, also, it, was a, it was a tough mission to get. It there. also had Linux on it at the beginning as well. You could put Linux on, yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember. Yeah. yeah, there was a bit of OS experimentation in there as well. <laughs> yeah, this put everything. I'm wondering. On. I'm wondering if it was Microsoft that really caused that problem. Not, you know, I wonder if it made them. You know, sometimes you sort of lose sight of what you are. Yeah. When you're when you're looking at the opposition, you forget about what you're doing. Um, well, I suppose you've got to look at the opposition to a certain extent, but um, I don't know. What, I mean, what's what's happening with the the Xbox One? Is it is it being is it true it's being is the PlayStation Four is outselling it four to one? I think it keeps changing. I I, I read a, a couple of months ago that apparently the Xbox had outselled it in that quarter, and now they've got rid of Connect and they've put the price down. But I think it is. It's a pretty close race at the moment. I and think. now uh, PlayStation VR may be uh, yeah. changing that. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I've I've been pre- I've, I'm. I've been very privileged to actually um, being able to see a lot of the VR stuff over the last year. Yeah. Because obviously when we've been making the Amiga years, we've gone to see developers that are working with VR now, top secret for the um, for the PS4. And it's, I mean, you know, I grew up in, I grew up in the 80s, but I remember in the 90s with, with the virtual reality systems with these yeah. huge televisions that you bolted to your skull, basically, that sort of, you know, broke your back trying to lift them up. And this is the new revolution, and it just died because the technology was a bit crap. Um, yeah, we were on it this weekend. Um, <laughs> one of those old virtuality machines. And, yeah, it was oh, really, God. like, 30 frames per second or, well, 15, 15 was, even, it? yeah. <laughs> but augmented reality, it's not, it's, some, it's not a new thing. If you remember those, um, oh, what were those old, um, like, binoculars things that were, there were three of them. There was, uh, you know, you put to your eyes when you were a kid. You played one of them as well, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, stereoscopic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's it. They, but they, they, you know, as a, as a kid, I remember playing that in the playground and being absolutely blown away by, you know, this sort of 
this this reality that you're able to see. So it's not it's not a new thing. But I think what's what's what the, the challenge is is how to adapt it into game design so that it becomes intuitive. So it's 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 like a uh, it's not a gimmick because I think gamers gamers are very intelligent. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young. The majority of gamers, if it becomes gimmicky, forget it. You know, it's all right for a laugh for five minutes or 20 minutes, but it's got to be something which is actually going to improve the game experience mm-hmm. in, in, in some way. In my humble opinion, I think there's always... I, I always love a controller in my hands. I love, you know, I love playing games on the Amiga or the PC, um, on the PlayStation. I like a controller actually to play it. But I have played some VR on the PS4, and it is a completely different experience. But it's not, not necessarily an experience I'd want to have every time. Yeah. You know, you wonder how you play something like FIFA with that, because obviously, yes, you can look around, I don't know, I mean, then you end up playing um, first-person perspective and you're standing in the pitch, but still you have to use your thumbs to control. It, it's it's going to change. I'm hearing about, I'm hearing things about, like, um, things that you use your feet. You know, you can literally push your feet forward and it allows the character to walk forwards and, and all sorts of other things. It's, it's very, very interesting. And it's interesting that PlayStation, at very much at the front, um, again, with um, with this new tech, we'll see how it goes out. How did we get onto VR, by the way? <laughs> I think yeah, hey, we go. That's, that's fine. Well, um, we're looking. <laughs> we can't wait to hear your stories from uh, all the people you're going to chat to in this movie. I mean, you know, the PlayStation is obviously, as we've mentioned in this like 45 minute interview, there's so much that you can cover, and so you know, the fact that the company's still going, and you know, a lot of those guys are still involved as well. I think it'll be a really interesting history to trace and. Based on your previous films, we can't wait to see what you do with this one. Oh, thank you very much. I, I think it'll be a nice, um, a nice conclusion to the to the three films. Well, I, I think it's a. Uh, I've, I truly, with with all the other films, when we've gone into them, we truly have not really had a firm idea as to exactly what we're going to get. I know that sounds a bit bizarre, but if we go into it, just. You know, saying, "Oh, we know why the how this happened with the PlayStation," and we're just trying to sort of cut people together how we assume the story was. Um, then we won't come out with a very good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's got to be that we've got to be prepared to be surprised, and I, and we don't really take anything for granted. And that's what I mean when I said there's plenty of stuff on the web, and some of them are actual genuine interviews where people have actually said this is how it was. So we're not just dismissing it. But I, we sort of want, we like to go into these things truly trying to find out something and find little nuggets and interesting things that, that have not been revealed before. Um, and that's that's what we're going to try and do with this. We'll try and, and of course, it's a great it's a great story. And I'm sure we said it'd be 90 minutes and it'll end up being two and a half hours again. <laughs> <laughs> but when can we expect it out then? Have you got uh, an ETA at the moment? Well, um, we actually want to have a rough cut of it together by um, by the end of December. Cool. Um, so I would say we, we've already we said to the Kickstarter backers, um, we've very kindly funded it for us back in July, which seems to be the worst time in the world to actually launch a Kickstarter campaign with Brexit and and uh, all sorts of other, you know, very serious things going on in the world. Um, so it was a very nice thing that the backers came out back to us. But we, we said May um, 2017, we, and we want to get it out for May 2017. It should be good, and hopefully we'll have a, a, a full roster of... Um, of Sony Le- uh, PlayStation Legends on there as well. Can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's going to be great. Absolutely. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for coming on this week again. We've really enjoyed talking to you, as always. Oh, thank you very much. It's lovely to talk to you. I'm very sorry Nicola wasn't here to um, uh, to be with you. She's as they're looking after our rather poorly son at the moment. Completely understandable. Passing our regards as well. We'll do. Excellent. Thank you again, guys. Thanks.